This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, The Mother in the Mystical Traditions, recorded Sunday, May 9th, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning, because it's Mother's Day, we are going to celebrate mothers and motherhood and the image of mother as it's seen in mystical traditions. But before we get into the topic, I have to preface it with a little bit of um, overview of the difference in the way mystics see the world, the cosmos, and the way modern secular materialist culture sees it. Otherwise, we can't understand what these mystics are talking about. And from a materialist point of view, the whole cosmos and everything in the cosmos reduces down to physical processes that occur within one dimension of time and space. I mean, one dimension, not that time and space, uh, they themselves have dimensions, but everything is reduced and leveled to this physical level of being and processes that just occur at this level of being. This is quite different from the traditional spiritual and mystical view of the cosmos that has been held uh, since the dawn of history uh, all over the globe. And most human beings on this planet have always seen the cosmos as being multidimensional. So we are a little weird and perhaps a little pathological. And this, the multidimensionality of the cosmos Uh, includes at least three realms. In other words, you can divide this up into at least three realms, and mystics of different traditions will divide it up into even more realms, make even finer distinctions. But at the very least, there is an ultimate reality that is formless, uh, that is infinite, that is uh, without limits, uh, that is inexpressible ultimately, and this is the, the foundation, if you like, of the whole cosmos. It surrounds the cosmos, if you like, and it permeates the cosmos. It transcends it, and it is eminent in it, and everything in it is actually express, expression of this ultimate reality. Then the next step down, so to speak, we have what is usually called the subtle realm. It's a realm of spiritual forms. These are not forms that appear to our uh, five Uh, physical senses. Uh, But these forms can appear to us in dreams, in visions, in reveries, uh, and they carry tremendous meaning. In a certain sense, if we're going to look at the meaning of forms, they are more real. And from a a mystical and spiritual point of view, actually, they, in a certain sense, are models for the uh, next realm down, which is our everyday sensory realm of experience. So we have this ultimate realm, the subtle realm, and the sensory realm, we could call it, or the corporal realm is the traditional uh, Christian uh, term for it. So uh, the mother, from a mystical point of view, appears in all these three realms, different aspects. This is why I had to give you this little preface. We're going to start by celebrating the mother as an image or a symbol for the ultimate realm, and then work our way down through these three realms. So then we get to the archetypal mother, and then we uh, will end up with uh, our own mothers, sensory mothers, so to speak. 
So first, let me also say that the religions of pre-literate history, uh, that is, before there was recorded history and so forth, talking before 7,000, 8,000 B.C., 10,000 B.C., uh, were, for the most part, centered on worship of the great goddess, the divine mother. And the symbols that are associated with her indicate that she was very closely connected to agriculture. There are symbols like wheat and corn and vines and so forth. Uh, In fact, I had a personal encounter with the great goddess when I was on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. There are these megaliths, these uh, ruins of, they're not really buildings so much as like kind of temple structures made out of huge stones. They're related to the Stonehenge megalith, for instance. In fact, the people who built these on the island of Malta eventually built Stonehenge. And you can trace their journey through the Mediterranean, out the Straits of Gibraltar, up the coast of Spain, and finally to England. And they left these sorts of structures behind. And in Malta, they left behind also these wonderful moon goddesses. There are these uh, large statues, and they're made of stone, and these goddesses have great moon faces and moon bellies and moon breasts. They're all very round and facund, and they're marvelous and mysterious. A lot has been written about these appearances of the great goddess, and there are many, many books some in our library, and many books particularly recently in the last oh, 20, 30 years or so. But... We know virtually nothing about the mystical aspects or meaning of the great goddess. The reason is because there's no surviving literature. This was from pre-literate times. So I'm not going to comment on the great goddess. I'm not going to yield to the temptation to speculate. There's a lot of speculation. And some of it's very interesting, and you're welcome to, to read about it. But I want to focus more now on how the mystics view motherhood. And we just don't know from that period. I'm sure there was tremendous mystical significance, but at least as far as I know, there's no real uh, concrete evidence uh, that would let us in on that secret. It's marvelous to go sit in her presence. I'll tell you that from my experience in Malta. Just stunning. I mean, there's something about it. You're sitting there. But um, (laughs) you might not have that reaction. That would be very personal. (laughs) So... Let's turn directly to the religions of our own historical epoch, the the, uh, major religions of uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. And if we look at the mystics of these traditions and uh, their views, uh, we see from an esoteric or mystical point of view, the ultimate nature of reality is beyond all duality. And that means it's beyond masculine and feminine. And, and mystics of all these traditions have always said that. Ultimately, we can't talk about God or the divine or the ultimate reality as masculine or feminine. It transcends all those dualities, and particularly and including, I should say, the duality of gender and sex. However, it's true that at the more exoteric level, the way uh, normal believers view these things, uh, this uh, ultimate reality is usually portrayed in masculine terms or has been historically. In Judaism, God is the Lord of the universe, Elohim. In Christianity, God is most often portrayed as the Father. It's a masculine, definitely masculine image. Uh, In Islam, God is the ruler or master, and we are his servants. It's more like the relationship of a master and servant and so forth. 
In Hinduism, both masculine and feminine terms are used, and, and images are used, uh, and even by mystics. Uh, Ananda Moyamai, who was a, a contemporary Indian mystic of this century, uh, used to speak in, of the divine of God in both masculine and feminine terms. She'd switch off. For instance, uh, one of her uh, quotes is, it is by seeking to know oneself that the great mother of all may be found. But then at other places, she'll talk about God as a he. And then there are even today in India, incarnations, human incarnations of the great mother. Mata and Rita Nandamai is one, and we have some books, as I mentioned earlier, in the library about her. But actually, the most powerful gods in India are still masculine. Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, uh, these are traditional gods of India that sort of dominate the myths, and the, the goddesses often play secondary roles in these stories. So there's a definite masculine bent, even in the polytheism of India. The polytheism, by the way, of course, not true polytheism. All these gods and goddesses are reflections or manifestations of the ultimate Brahman, which is beyond uh, gender. So of all the major religions of our era, our epic, the one exception to this is Chinese Taoism. And Taoism, like other, uh, other religions, from a mystical point of view, the ultimate reality, which is called the Tao, the way, is not only beyond gender, it's also beyond all words, images, concepts, and so forth. So the founder of Taoism, Lao Tzu, uh, started off his great classic, the Tao Te Ching, with these words, the Tao which can be Taoed is not the true Tao. And Tao, he's making a pun on this because Tao also means to speak or to name. So he's saying the Tao which can be named or spoken of is not the true Tao. But then he went on to write 81 verses about this thing you can't speak about. And all mystics recognize this. To give a teaching, you have to use words and ideas and images and concepts and so forth. But the interesting thing about the Taoists, starting with Lao Tzu, is that they chose to portray the Tao almost exclusively in feminine and maternal terms. <clears throat> and the reason for this is because one of the fundamental characteristics of the Tao, as they describe it, is emptiness. And when they say emptiness, they mean something very close to what the Buddhists mean by emptiness, and that is that it is empty of any distinctions and any forms. The Tao has no forms of distinction of its own. But this emptiness is not a mere blankness. It's not just a sort of a physical vacuum. This is an emptiness that is pregnant, if I may use that word, with potentiality and power and fruitfulness. So one of the uh, more abstract metaphors for this is like the space in which, in Taoist terms, the myriad creatures appear. And when the Taoists use this phrase, the myriad creatures, as I've said, they're not just talking about little squirrels and butterflies and things. They talk, they're talking about all the forms that appear. So Lao Tzu says... Is not the space between heaven and earth like a bellows? It is empty without being exhausted. The more it works, the more comes out. So the space between heaven and earth, from their point of view, that's all of space. I mean, the limits of space are heaven and earth. And all the creatures that arise are arising out of this space and returning to this space. 
And so he compares it to a bellows that you use to, you know, get a fire going. That is empty, but it works and things come out of it. So the Tao then is empty but fruitful, and that is very much like a womb, which is empty but fruitful. And so Lao Tzu then goes on to say, all things under heaven have a beginning, which may be regarded as the mother of the world. This is not Mother Earth. This is Mother beyond Mother Earth. Earth comes out of this Mother. Sky comes out of this Mother. Everything comes out of this Mother. And it's like, again, like a womb. If a womb wasn't empty, there would be no room for things to grow in it. So this is an image, then, that starts to recur throughout Taoism again and again. Now, it's important to realize that this is not just some sort of primitive science. And this is, again, a fault of our modern historians because they have a scientific view of the world. Then they look back at these, quote, primitive peoples and they say, oh, well, this is their way of giving an explanation of how things came about. And it's by way of analogy to human birth and procreation. And it seems kind of naive to us today, but those poor primitive people thought of it that way. This is not the case at all. They're not just making an analogy. They're seeing a principle at work throughout the whole cosmos and including, and most importantly, an inner principle that has tremendous and profound psycho-spiritual significance for those who inhabit this cosmos and who want to know the great Tao, the way, directly. So this image of the mother, then, carries several meanings. The first is mothers embody that same selfless love for their children that the Tao has for the myriad creatures. So Lao Tzu says, Thus the way gives them life and rears them, brings them to fruition and maturity, feeds and shelters them. It gives them life, yet claims no possession. It benefits them, yet exacts no gratitude. It is the steward, yet exercises no authority. Such is called the mysterious virtue. And Again, if we really contemplate this for a bit, all this stuff comes into being and no one's asking or demanding anything in uh, recompense. Just our, our naked experience. Look, these forms are just arising. These myriads of forms and so forth. And you don't hear a voice saying, and you better pay me back. Our own lives arise this way. They are gifts. And this is what, the, what uh, Lao Tzu means by this selfless love. It's not a sentimental kind of love, but it's this giving, giving, giving without any concern for self. And this is very much the way, in the normal course of events, uh, mothers, the same attitude is expressed mothers have to their, for their children. They just want what's best for their children. They give life to their children. They nourish their children. They raise their children. They're not looking for something back. You, you know, there's not a contract with your mother that when you become a, you know, 21, you've got to pay her back for all those hours. At least there wasn't that idea until very recently. <laughs> <laughs> now, since the Tao has this selfless giving quality, if you want to know the Tao directly, not just think about it, but directly, you must conform to it. You yourself must become like the Tao. You must 
manifest these qualities. So Lao Tzu goes on to say, Therefore the sage benefits them, yet extracts no gratitude, accomplishes his tasks, yet lays claim to no merit. So in a, in a, really what he's saying is if you want to know reality, you have to live realistically. You have to live in accordance with reality. And if we really contemplate what is actually going on in the cosmos, we see this is the reality. And then we conform ourselves to the way and we begin to understand it, not just with the mind, but with the heart, with the body, with the soul, all through us. The second reason for using a mother as a metaphor is that to know reality directly, we have to be totally receptive, which generally, especially in Chinese culture, was considered a feminine quality. We have to be receptive and we also have to be emptied, as the Tao is emptied. Emptied of what? Emptied of our, our ideas, our concepts, our notions about it. We can think about it, but if we want to directly experience it, directly know it, directly realize it, then we have to let all that uh, superficial kind of knowledge go, that knowledge that creates distinctions and so forth. So Lao Tzu goes on then to talk about actual practice, what this means in practice. And he uses this image I have to explain to you. He says, when the gates of heaven open and shut, and that's like the bellows, as things arise, and then return to their roots, as Lao Tzu would say, as we just watch here, as in the little meditation we did this morning. You watch phenomena rise, appear, you watch them disappear, and so forth. He says, when the gates of heaven open and shut, are you capable of keeping to the role of the female? That is, to just be receptive, not be out there interfering with everything. It's that we should never be active in the world, but if we want to understand it, we have to observe. And we have to be totally receptive to what we're observing. If we already have our preconceptions about it all, then that's what we will see. Or we'll see puzzling things because they won't fit our preconceptions. But if we drop all that, if we're totally receptive and open to it, then the cosmos will reveal itself to us. And then he says, when your discernment penetrates to the four quarters, are you capable of not knowing anything? As you observe and as your insight deepens and you really start to uh, uh, your insight penetrates to the four quarters is a, a, a metaphorical way of talking about knowing realizing the whole cosmos is, behaves this way is this way are you capable of doing this of knowing in a way that is a non-knowing that is a non-intellectual knowing can you get rid of all your ideas and know at a deeper and different level so again, this is the image of the womb. You make your mind like that womb that is empty. Then something will be born in it. And your attitude in this practice then becomes receptive, receiving, and not active and aggressive. When we know reality directly, without the mediation of concepts, this brings about spiritual liberation. Sang Sang, another great Chinese sage, writes, if the mind makes no distinctions, the 10,000 things are as they are of a single essence. To understand the mystery of this one essence is to be released from all entanglements. So this is the path to enlightenment from a Taoist point of view. And it's the path of the mother, the path of the feminine, the path of uh, 
manifesting in your practice those qualities. That's how you will get to know uh, what this Tao is all about. But then and finally, in knowing the essence of reality, that is the mother of reality, which is empty of all distinctions and forms, you also then know the essence of its children, which are the forms that are created by all these distinctions. So this isn't some retreat into some, uh, again, sort of samadhi or blank nirvana or something. It is if you know the underlying reality, then you know the reality of what you're actually experiencing all the time in terms of form. So Lao Tzu then again says, if one knows the mother, one thereby knows the child. If after having known the child, one holds fast to the mother, one will escape error even to the end of one's life. So now this relationship of a mother and child becomes the fundamental metaphor for the whole cosmos. For really, if we want to think about them, very abstract ideas. For form and formlessness. For what is really the, the, the underlying uh, nature of reality and the relationship of form to formlessness, like mother and child. Uh, similar metaphors are also found in Mahayana Buddhism, although they don't uh, occur as frequently and they don't occupy as central a place. All of Taoism is built around these beautiful feminine metaphors and, and metaphors of the mother. Uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, of course, because it is Buddhism, the Buddha is male. I mean, the Buddha was historically male, and the major um, manifestations of the Buddha, the archetypal realm, are, are masculine and so forth. But we find this womb metaphor occurring for the nature of ultimate reality, which is Buddha mind. This isn't the historical Buddha that walked on the earth, but it is what the Buddha realized, and it's often called uh, Buddha mind or one mind, universal mind, things like that. It also has a technical name that I have to tell you because I'm going to read the quote, and that is Tathagata, which means thus come or thus gone. The idea is that th this is the way of the Buddha, the Buddha's mind. The Buddha in Buddhist uh, imagery crossed the ocean of samsara, so he's gone to the far shore. So uh, that mind that goes to the far shore is Tathagata. So here's what the Lakanvatara Sutra says. And he, the Lakanvatara Sutra is talking about a bodhisattva, which is a Buddhist disciple, advanced Buddhist disciple. With the bodhisattva's attainment, there comes a turning about within the deepest seat of consciousness from self-centered egoism to universal compassion for all beings, by which they attain perfect self-realization of noble wisdom. There is an instant cessation of the delusive activities of the whole mind system, revealing the inconceivable oneness of the womb of Tathagata. So again, we find this womb image appearing. This is very close to the Chinese here. There was some cultural influence, but the Taoism predates uh, Buddhism. This idea, first of all, that the Buddha's mind, or Buddha mind, it's not the personal Buddhist mind, but the underlying nature of reality is like a womb for the same reasons of the, the fact that it's empty but full of potentiality. Uh, also, this uh, business of the transformation from self-centeredness to compassion uh, is also, again, implied in the image of a womb and motherhood and a mother's attitude <coughs> towards her children. And then uh, this business of 
the oneness of things, what is realized is ultimately something that transcends all these dualities and images. But we're using these images and dualities to, uh, to try to point uh, in the direction how you get there. Among Tibetan Buddhists, uh, the mother-son metaphor is used to describe the actual moment of enlightenment. And here's how Lama Lodra explains it. There will be a spontaneous recognition that the mind which has been meditating on emptiness and the state of emptiness itself are one and the same. Each will mutually recognize the other. The mind which meditates on emptiness is called the sun. The natural reality of the mind itself is known as the mother. The person who has accomplished very thorough and profound meditation will experience a merging of the two. This is like the encounter between a mother and a long-lost child. When the mother and child meet each other, the mother will naturally and spontaneously recognize her child and be filled with natural joy. So here the uh, mother-son image is used. And note again, the mother is the uh, image for the ultimate reality. The son is that mind that through a practice of meditation, which is receptive and so forth, becomes in a certain sense transparent to itself. And a certain uh, point, that son mind, which is we can think of it as being born out of the mother, if you like, then they mutually recognize each other. And what that means is actually they were always one from the beginning. And so your mind is the Buddha mind. That's the Buddhist teaching, although you don't know it. That's the problem. The mystics of the Western religions also do recognize the maternal and feminine aspect of ultimate reality. Uh, just to mention briefly, the Jewish Kabbalists, for instance, conceive of the cosmos as coming about from a marriage of God's hesed and din. Those are Hebrew words, and I'm sure I'm butchering them. But uh, what they mean is God's love and power. So the idea is God, from a Kabbalist point of view, is unsoft, is beyond all uh, duality, beyond any masculine or feminine uh, appellations. But right at the beginning of this process of the generation of the cosmos, the inherent qualities of love and power are what produce, through a union, compared to a sexual union, start to produce the cosmos of forms. Interesting to note that love in this is masculine and the power is feminine. They're reversed from what we might normally think. Uh, a similar thing pertains in uh, the Sufis' view, the Sufis being the mystics of Islam. They have this whole imagery of the universe coming about through the pen and the soul. And the idea is the pen is the power to create form. As if you had a blank piece of paper, you have a pen, and the pen is what starts making distinctions, making forms. The soul, the universal soul here, we're not talking about an individual soul yet, then is that blank sheet of paper. So you, again, you have this image of emptiness and form, and the pen is masculine, and the universal soul is feminine, and again, it's a marriage between them that starts to produce the whole cosmos of forms. And there, from a Sufi point of view, several levels and steps down, and each one uh, repeats on a more... A concrete plane, this union, this sexual union, this sexual marriage. We have here a, uh, a whole image of the cosmos as being a marriage and a procreation coming out of that. A one becomes two and so forth. And so we have the play of the one and the many 
sort of filtering down or manifesting, radiating out, we might say. There's one interesting immediate result in um, the, uh, particularly in the Kabbalist and Sufi uh, traditions, that that is human sexuality and procreation is not seen as something sinful at all. In fact, it is literally a manifestation of divine processes. So it is sacred. It can be abused like anything else, and then that's where the error, the sin, the misdeed comes in. But in and of itself, uh, to consider sex uh, sinful is like blasphemy. I mean, this is how God creates the whole world. And our sexuality isn't just, it's not just poetic. It is an embodiment of that process from their point of view. So it is like a, a direct participation in how the cosmos comes about. If we move down the scale here to the archetypal realm per se, that is these images and figures and beings and so forth that appear to us in visions and dreams and, and whatnot, uh, we have many manifestations of uh, mother and feminine, and we only really have time to discuss two here. I picked two from two very different cultures. The first is the Christian Mary. Uh, the Virgin Mother of Jesus, which some of us are already somewhat familiar with. But we have actually, in our culture, even if you grew up Catholic Christian, uh, we've already are beginning to lose the importance Mary had during the Middle Ages, in particularly in the uh, Latin and Eastern churches, this tremendous importance she uh, acquired. At her human level, uh, she has certain qualities that uh, are manifestations of divine qualities. Her virginity symbolizes purity. And again, purity from a mystic's point of view is sinlessness, but a sin is self-centeredness. So uh, to be sinless is to be not to be self-centered. Uh, she was born uh, theologically without sin. You know, I don't know if you know this, the Immaculate Conception does not apply to Jesus, it applies to Mary. And the idea is that she came about through normal human sexual processes, but she did not inherit original sin. So it was an Immaculate Conception. Then her acceptance of motherhood, the motherhood of Jesus, is a manifestation of this quality of unhesitating submission to the divine will. Imagine a young woman in... Uh, Palestine and the turn of the millennium there, the first millennium, uh, uh, imagine an angel coming to you and saying, you are going to give birth even though you're not married. You know, this is a culture where they stone uh, adulteresses and stuff, you know, and to be an unmarried young woman giving birth is a, is a tremendous disgrace. And in the Gospels, the point of the Gospel stories is that she accepts this without hesitation because it's coming from God. And there's the famous... Uh, magnification. She says, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. This is after the angel announces that she's going to be giving birth to Jesus. It's interesting to contrast this attitude with some of the uh, male uh, great prophets and teachers of these religions and traditions. For instance, uh, Moses, if you read carefully the story of Moses on the mountain, he goes up the mountain, he first encounters God. God says, you're going to go down there and you're going to lead my people and you're going to tell Pharaoh this and that. And Moses says, well, why me? And he says, I'm not very good with words. And God says, don't worry about it. I'll put words in your mouth. And Moses says, well, why don't you take my brother? He's got a gift of speech. And Moses is a very reluctant prophet. He don't want to go. 
And God has to convince him. And finally he goes and God promises him his brother will go with him to help him out a little bit. But he is not unhesitatingly saying he, his soul magnifies God. He does not necessarily want this burden. And Muhammad in the cave, the first thing when he gets the revelation of the Quran, uh, the angel says to him, recite. And he says, I can't. And the angel says, recite. Recite the Quran. And he, he says, I don't know. I'm not literate. I'm not an educated person. But uh, the angel says, and he himself thought he was going crazy. And he left the cave and he went down and he talked to his wife, Khadijah, and he told her what's going on. And she's the one who convinced him, you're not crazy. This is a true revelation. You've got to go back and you've got to continue. There would be no Islam if it was not for Khadijah. That's true. And she was the first Muslim, but not only the first Muslim, but the, he doubted. She didn't doubt. So it's this quality of this unhesitating uh, willingness to accept whatever the divine will gives us in our life. These, of course, are great moments in history, but this means in our everyday lives. Do we turn away from reality? Do we turn away from what's presented to us, or do we embrace it? Do we meet it head on? And this is what Mary signifies for us, even though uh, most of us aren't going to have the opportunity to give birth to Jesus. But in each moment, there's something going on that's being given birth to. And what's our response? Oh, no, no, I don't like this reality. Oh, no, turn away. Or is it to embrace it, even whether it's good or bad, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and dance with it if you like. But in both in the Catholic and Eastern churches of the Middle Ages, Mary was much, much more than a mere human being. She was a true archetype. Mary reigns in heaven as Theodicus, which is Greek, the mother of God, which is quite a title. Uh, she's also the intercessor with her son, Jesus, who's been given, by the way, in the, in theologically, the power of judgment. So Jesus is the one who is going to judge at the end of the resurrection, but Jesus is also the one who is judging now. So she has this tremendous power because she can intercede with her son on your behalf. And this is uh, beautifully, beautifully uh, expressed in the Hail Mary, which some of us had to learn as children. Let's see if I can remember. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. You see, those nuns did a good job. <laughs> it's, a, it's really beautiful if you think about it. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. This is a, a, a figure that's potent with grace. Grace is what is giving, by the way, as we're going to see in a moment here. Blessed art thou amongst, amongst women, blessed are the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. What a title, Mother of God, my God. Holy Mary, <laughs> Mother of God. Now, here's the part. Pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. This is not addressed to Jesus, and it's certainly not addressed to God, who's too remote, and, you know, that's the big patriarchal father up there. But the mother will understand. She'll understand your problems now and in the hour of your death. When you really need help, when you really need grace, you go to Mary. You don't go to Jesus or, or God. Above all, what Mary is, I don't say, not just symbolizes, what she is, is this quality of unconditional love, unconditional love for all beings, all people, I should say, all beings probably too, but in, that's a more Buddhist expression. 
And there are examples of this that come from uh, things that have come down to us from the Middle Ages. Let me read you uh, what David Kingsley says in this book, The Goddess's Mirror, which is a study of these feminine and maternal archetypes. Let me read you what some of the things he says. First of all, about her miracles. The importance of Mary as a savior in popular piety is vividly depicted in Roman Catholic areas where ex voto pictures adorn church walls. These pictures depict situations in which, according to the devotee, Mary has intervened to save someone from catastrophe. In the Ticines area of Switzerland, for example, ex voto paintings depict act accidents typical of that mountainous area, such as people falling off cliffs, road accidents and avalanches, Many pictures portray people who are bedridden, sick, or injured. Others show children in danger of being burned, drowned, or crushed by rocks or vehicles. Some pictures show soldiers in combat or people being attacked by robbers. One picture shows a man being struck by lightning, while others show ships being tossed in stormy seas. Some ex voto scenes include photographs of wrecked cars or motorcycles. In all these pictures, Mary is shown serenely floating in the sky above the scene of earthly danger, calamity, or distress. Many of the pictures have GR written on them, which stands for Grazia Ricevuta, for grace received. The message of these popular scenes seems clear. Mary is being thanked for, by her devotees for acts of grace whereby they or their relatives were spared death or misfortune. And then, I don't think you can see them from here, but there's a couple of pictures. This is, this is Mary up here, and then somebody is rescuing someone from a, a crevasse or something they fell into. And this is a, looks like an avalanche. And here's Mary with the little Jesus up here. Uh, so Mary's the one you call on in your everyday situations, you know, when you really need help, when you're up against the wall, and for practical sorts of things. There's another marvelous story here about Mary. And uh, let me read you Kinsley's account. Mary's mercy and compassion for sinners is emphasized in legends contained in the apocryphal works that tell of her descent to hell shortly before or after her death. When she sees the terrible suffering of the people in hell, she cries out to Jesus to show them mercy. Mary is not concerned with the sins that have put these individuals in hell. She is only concerned about the agony they suffer there and is moved to help them. Notice, this is very important. First of all, this whole business of descent into hell is part of this archetypal uh, legend, mystery. One of the things about archetypes is that they repeat, as we'll see, and these themes, these uh, archidramas, if you like, keep cropping up again. But she's so compassionate, she'll even go to hell. And she doesn't care what she's done. That's not what she's looking at. People are suffering. So that arouses her unconditional compassion. Then, this I love this one. This is all now comes from the Middle Ages. A lot of this the church frowned on, by the way. You know, there was a big move to make Mary really a co-divinity with Jesus and God and so forth, and that was always resisted officially by the church. But it, it came from a popular feeling about her. This one the church did not like, although it's not, it wasn't a prosecutor's heresy or anything. But Mary even came to be seen to defend sinners against Jesus, the wrath of Jesus. So 
And here's a dream that uh, Leo, who was a Franciscan monk hat, this is a wonderful little dream. Leo saw two ladders leading up to heaven. One was as red as blood, the other as white as lilies. At the top of the red ladder there appeared Christ, his face full of wrath. St. Francis beckoned to his brothers not to fear and to climb the ladder. They try but fall. Francis prays, but Christ displays his wounds and thunders, Your brothers have done this to me. So St. Francis runs down and leads his brethren to the white ladder, and they scale effortlessly and without mishap to find Mary at the top, all smiles to welcome them. <laughs> if you're having trouble on your spiritual path, maybe you're climbing the wrong ladder. I'm serious. You see, there, there are messages in these teachings and so forth. You ponder it. It's not just a funny story. It is a cute story. But it can be a story about your own path. If you are feeling that resistance and wrath and whatnot, maybe you're trying to climb the wrong ladder. As I say, her love is uh, unconditional. She doesn't care, as this story illustrates. She doesn't care about justice. That's not her concern. She won't help you if you want to do an evil deed. But if you're suffering and you need help, she's available. And finally, here's what Marie, uh, Marina Warner, who's a, a Marian scholar, writes. She says, the more raffish the virgin suppliant, the better she likes him. <laughs> the miracle's heroes are liars, thieves, adulterers, and fornicators, footloose students, pregnant nuns, unruly and lazy clerics, and eloping monks. <laughs> On the single condition that they sing her praises, usually by reciting the Ave Maria, and show due respect for the miracle of the incarnation wrought in her, they can do no wrong. Through her, the whole gay crew of wanton, loving, weak humanity finds its way to paradise. <laughs> so, now, interestingly enough, if we turn to the opposite ends of the globe, so to speak, and a certainly a very different culture, and we look to the Chinese tradition, we find a figure known as Quan Yin. Quan Yin's name means, she who hears the cries of the world. And she is an archetypal goddess figure. And if we uh, uh, look historically, we can see that she's actually a blend of two bodhisattva archetypes, uh, Tara, who is a Tibetan deity, and uh, Avalokiteshvara, who is the Buddha of compassion, who are both male, or Tara is female, but then uh, a blend of these two with a legendary Chinese princess called Miao Shan. And let me tell you Mia Shan's story briefly. As a young woman, she's growing up in a typical Chinese household, and her parents, a particular father, is trying to arrange a marriage for her. She doesn't want to get married. She wants to become a renunciate and take uh, vows as a Buddhist nun. And her father, of course, doesn't like this at all, but uh, he goes along with her for a while, and he checks her into the monastery, the Buddhist monastery, and he tells the nuns at the monastery to really make life difficult for her. And so they do. But, of course, she prevails and with some divine intervention and help, and she can do all these tasks that the nuns lay on her. See, the nuns are the same also all through the... <laughs> anyway, there's some nice nuns. I've had some nice nuns. They get a bad rap. They really do. Uh, anyway, so she prevails, so the father's furious, so he kills her. So... She goes down to hell, but she sees all the suffering of the people in hell, and she puts out all the fires and uh, starts to lead them out of hell to the pure land. 
And the, the king of hell is getting very upset because his whole domain is going to be ruined. So he sends her back to life. He doesn't want her down there because she's turning hell into a paradise. So she comes back to life. And uh, through uh, these are a lot of miraculous things are happening here. I'm giving the, you know, the short version. And in the meantime, her father, because of his evil deeds, gets afflicted with this illness. And the physicians of the day tell him the only thing that will cure him is the eyes and limbs of a living person who is without any wrath. So if he can find somebody who will give him his eyes and limbs without any anger or resistance or anything, then he can get cured. Well, as the story goes, Miao Shan hears about this, and of course she gladly gives her eyes and her, and her limbs to her father, so they make the medicine and he gets cured. And as a result, then the gods give her this peach, and she eats the peach, and it's the peach of immortality, and she becomes a goddess, and she retires to Mount Batola on this island. And ever since, she has been the archetype of love and compassion. She herself is not actually a mother, but she's particularly the goddess that uh, pregnant girls go to pray to, so the pregnancy will come out okay and so forth. Now, some of you may have noticed that there was this little uh, parallel about the descent into hell. And as Mary descended into hell and started uh, praying for everybody to be released from hell, well, this is what uh, Kuan Yin does. And there are other parallels as well. The Lotus Sutra describes her miracles, Kuan Yin's miracles. So let me just read you a little bit of this. They are a series of dangers from which Kuan Yin rescues her devotees. Prominent among these are fire, shipwreck, falling from great height, execution, imprisonment, wild animals, and natural calamities, lightning, and floods. The text asserts that if one is surrounded by fire but concentrates on the power of Kuan Yin, the fire will change to a cool lake. If one slips and falls from a high place but concentrates on Kuan Yin, one will remain suspended in midair. If one is surrounded by robbers approaching murderously but remembers Kuan Yin's saving power, they will become kind-hearted and do no harm, and so on. So, again, her miracles are very much the same as uh, Mary's miracles. They're the everyday things, shipwreck and robbers and things like that. If you just call out the Kuan Yin when you have, are faced with these sorts of uh, everyday distresses and calamities, she is the protectress of all this. <clears throat> and then finally, Kuan Yin doesn't care how bad you are, like Mary. There are lots of stories that illustrate this, but there's one story, and this is about a young man who has an evil stepmother. Uh, who actually came into the household as a concubine. And she mistreated and hounded his own mother and to the point where his own mother died. So the young man was seeking revenge. So he came upon his evil stepmother in the, in the corner of her garden all alone. And he thought, ah, now's my chance. So he pulled out his dagger and he starts towards her. And this evil old woman sees him coming and she turns to Kuan Yin. She says... Save from suffering, save from harm, bodhisattva, come. And the young man starts to laugh. I mean, how could this evil old woman expect to have divine <laughs> grace? And, you know, well, suddenly he's paralyzed and he can't kill her. So, again, as long as you're not asking to, for help doing something selfish or, or, or evil, if you are suffering, that's all Kuan Yin cares about. She doesn't care about your past. She doesn't care about your sins. She's the bodhisattva of unconditional compassion and love.
So these parallels actually show us two things. First of all, they, they really uh, illustrate why Jung, the great psychologist, said that, that we, we share a collective unconscious in which these archetypes keep manifesting. It doesn't matter what culture you come from, what time, what place in history, or anything like that. We find the same figures arising again and again, the same stories told, the same dramas, and all, by the way, not just uh, arbitrarily, but all manifesting, teaching us about certain qualities and principles, uh, spiritual principles of life. So really, from a mystic's point of view, we don't have... Uh, Mary and Kuan Yin. We have uh, one archetype manifesting, the archetype of unconditional love and compassion in different garb for uh, different peoples in different times and places. And aside from the um, philosophical curiosity of this fact that these archetypes show up like this, it has also a fundamental importance for us, particularly today. Because if you recognize this, what it means is you don't have to be a Christian and you don't have to be a Buddhist to call on this archetype. These are not specific to those traditions. This quality and this uh, help is available. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that you are going to, uh, uh, you know, be in the middle of a car wreck and, and call on the unconditional love and compassion and get guaranteed that you're going to miraculously avoid the car wreck. What it does mean is if you meet any situation in life with unconditional love and compassion and with unhesitating acceptance of reality and willingness to be there, that you will not suffer. Ultimately, you will not suffer, no matter what calamity falls upon you. And that is the real deep teaching of, of this mother figure. So, finally, let's turn to the corporal realm. And... From a mystical point of view, our mothers are an embodiment of this archetype. Again, this, uh, it's, this is hard for us to grasp here. It's not that these are poetic sorts of images and so forth. Insofar as you as a mother naturally just have this loving, selfless, compassionate attitude towards your children, you are expressing something divine. You don't have to think about it and generate it. And, so, of course, on a, at the corporal level, we are not uh, as pure as mirror Kuan Yin. We also have mixed in uh, our own selfish motivations and so forth. That's okay. That doesn't matter. The, the message here is that when that quality does shine through in those acts, that is divine. That is something divine manifesting in your life. And as all of us as children, even though we all can't be mothers, we are receiving something divine when that shines through to us. So in a certain sense, mothers, insofar as they manifest this quality, are models for us. And the Tibetan Buddhists uh, actually incorporate our corporal mothers into various practices, formal practices that they do. And one of them is a practice called sending and taking. And this is a practice of compassion. And uh, the, the heart of the practice is basically you visualize taking on the suffering of other beings and sending them uh, love and compassion and joy. And the way the Tibetan Buddhists approach this practice is you begin with someone that you already love, and then you move on to strangers, people you don't really know, and then finally you do this practice with your enemies. 
but you sort of have to work up to that. They recognize it is actually a very powerful practice. It sounds perhaps sort of corny, but we've had people on retreat try this practice and have very strong reaction in spite of what they think up here. In any case, there's a, uh, a cute little story about this because traditionally the Tibetans always start with their mother. You visualize taking on the suffering of your mother and sending out love and compassion to your mother because it's just absolutely assumed without question among Tibetans that you, of course, love your mother above all other beings. And a friend of uh, mine, and some of you know her, Andrea, uh, she lives down in uh, Lone Pine and there's a, a lama down there, a Tibetan lama, Lama Gocha. He teaches in the area. And she acts as his assistant and helps him out and has known him for a number of years. And he also is a very traditional lama. He goes by the book. The way he was taught, that's the way he's going to teach this practice. And, of course, whenever they start to do this practice, and he suggests starting with your mother, a lot of Westerners have a little trouble with that. They don't necessarily have a total uh, love and, you know, for their mothers. And so Andrea was trying to get him to understand this. The Westerners are not like Tibetans. And this is almost incomprehensible to him. But finally, he got the picture that this was not uh, suitable for Westerners to start with, necessarily with their mother. So uh, he finally got the picture. He said, okay. And so they go, went to a group, and he was teaching the practice. And he said, well, he said, now, uh, we Tibetans, we begin with our mothers. But I understand that's a little bit of a problem for you. So you can begin with your dog. <laughs> you know, I, it's a funny story, but it also, I, there may be something related to that and to things like the incidents that have happened at Thurston High School and Columbine High School and so forth. Do you know what I mean? Uh, in all other cultures, uh, honoring your parents is a sacred duty. It's not something uh, secular. Uh, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is uh, honor your mother and father. And in Islam, uh, in the Quran, it's very laid out. The duties of parents to their children and the duties of children to their parents. These aren't just uh, nice customs or etiquette or something. This is considered to be built into the fundamental way the universe works. And in the sacred cultures, they tell their children stories of Mary and Kuan Yin. These are what get inculcated as they're growing up. We don't tell our children stories like that. And if we look at the kinds of stories we do tell our children, why are we surprised when things like this happen, why our kids uh, do these almost incomprehensible things to us? We really shouldn't be so surprised. We have stripped our universe of these qualities of unconditional love and compassion because we don't think they're real anymore. But they are real, and it has real effects when we ignore them. I want to read you one last beautiful thing here. I think it's beautiful. A story about Muhammad. Uh, this is from a book called um, uh, Irshad, Wisdom of a Sufi Master, and it's by Sheikh Muzaffar. Where is Abdul? Is not here today. Thank God. <laughs> uh, the messenger of Allah, of course, is Muhammad. And when he was conducting his mission, he had companions. His closest friends were his, his companions. They were always around him. So this is a story about Muhammad and one of his companions. One day, a noble companion asked, O messenger of Allah, 
Who has the greater right over children, the mother or the father? The chief of the two worlds vouchsafed this reply. The mother's right is greater than the father's. The question was repeated three times, and each time the reply was the same. Only at the fourth asking did the answer change to, the father's right is greater. The companion then inquired, O messenger of Allah, why do you give the mother three rights to the father's one? To this he replied, your mother carried you for nine months and ten days in her womb and then gave you birth. After that, she gave up her sleep for you, suckled you, carried you in her arms for three years and cleaned up your mess. For seven years, she carried you on her back. She did your laundry. She cooked and served your food for 18 years. When you were 40, 50, 60, she still followed your progress with interest. As for your father, he sewed you in your mother's womb, provided for food, and made sure you had clothes to wear. Can this be compared with your mother's role? The companion went on to ask, Well, O Messenger of Allah, I wonder if I could ever repay my mother for all the help and service, however much I might do for her. The messenger replied, You could not repay so much as one night's due. And then the uh, companion says, but suppose I carry my mother on my back for years, clean up after her, cook for her and feed her. Suppose I attend to those same services as long as she may live. And the messenger replied, there will still be this one difference between you. Your mother looked out for you to live while you are waiting for her to die. So let me... Uh, close this by celebrating my own mother. And my own mother did uh, most of the things that Muhammad described the mother does for her child and, and so forth. And for that, I'm very grateful. But she also did something else. And probably each one of us, if we thought about our mothers, there's something special. And I was looking back, I was trying to say, what would be the one thing I really want to thank my mother for above and beyond the normal caring and so forth and so on that a mother gives to her child? And I, when I look back, I think the thing that she really gave me most and almost unconsciously was a love of beauty and art. My mother was an artist and she was surrounded by art books and pictures on the wall and so forth. She was herself steeped in it. And she never taught me any formally uh, anything about art. I never write, took any art classes. I took one art appreciation class when I was in Columbia for a semester, which was a great class. But it was being able then to really see the world visually uh, through the eyes of artists because I grew up this way. And it wasn't something that she strained to do. She wasn't competitive. She wasn't trying to make her child, uh, you know, cultured or something like that. It really came out of a quality that she had cultivated in herself. And so it was something that I got from her, something that she was, not something she was trying to artificially impart to me. She herself had come from a, a, a poor working class background with none of this in it. And somehow the spark was lit in her and she had gone to art school and so forth and trained herself. And so this is what she passed on, this quality. And I think that this is really perhaps one of the great lessons of uh, either being a child or being a mother or being a father for that matter, a parent and so forth. Our greatest teaching to our children and what we learn most from our parents is even not so much what they say, but who they are. So if you want to be a great parent, become a great person.
Let's give the mothers a. Oh, you mothers.